in Crossview. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm the youth pastor here. My name is Nolan Hodge. Uh, I can't really use the title new youth pastor anymore because I've been here for a little bit, Uh, but this is my first time preaching with you all, so I'm just really excited to be here and to be leading us in this way. Um, If you were excited to hear Pastor Jeff preach this morning, I'm sorry he's not here, Uh, and and especially I apologize to the the Jeff Kinnett fan club. They must be pretty disappointed. I believe there's only two people in that fan club, though, so it's pretty exclusive, and I think it's okay. Uh, But anyhow, before we jump in, I want to kind of give a bird's-eye view of uh, what we've been talking about and where we're going. Uh, So we just finished our sermon series in Deuteronomy, and now we're moving towards Easter, as Mark had mentioned. Next week is Palm Sunday, so we're celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem then. And the following week is Easter Sunday. So this Sunday is going to be one of our only Lenten-specific sermons of the year. Lent being a fancy church term that we use to describe that transitional time in which we prepare our hearts for Holy Week, for the suffering of Jesus and ultimately his resurrection. So as I was choosing a scripture for this sermon, I was looking at passages right before the Palm Sunday narrative to root us in the story that's unfolding. And both Matthew and Mark describe the same final two interactions that take place right before Jesus enters Jerusalem, where he'll ultimately be crucified. All of the gospel writers are intentional in the way they structure their narratives, ordering events in such a way to help lead us through the life and teachings of Jesus. And I find that Matthew, in particular, has a certain narrative thrust, almost this foreboding tension that builds to Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, where things are about to go down. So these final interactions are important in understanding what is to come. So in our passage this morning, Matthew 20, we find ourselves with two different interactions from people asking two different favors or two different requests of Jesus. The first interaction begins with the mother of James and John asking for her sons to be seated on Jesus' left and right in his kingdom. We find that in verses 20 to 28. The second is with two blind men as they ask Jesus for mercy and for sight. We see that in verses 29 to 34. And even as I briefly describe those requests asked of Jesus, maybe you already sense a strong contrast between those two favors. So we're going to look at that. So I'm just going to read our passage this morning, and I invite you to follow along in your Bibles or on your phones as we'll be hopping around in this chapter uh, in Matthew. So here now, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 34. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for ones he has chosen. When the 10 other disciples, they heard what James and John asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials, they flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. 
Whoever wants to be leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and the disciples left the town of Jericho, a large crowd followed behind. Two blind men were sitting beside the road. When they heard that Jesus was coming that way, they began shouting, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Be quiet, the crowd yelled at them. But they only shouted louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. When Jesus heard them, he stopped and called, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said, we want to see. Jesus felt sorry for them and touched their eyes. Instantly, they could see. Then they followed him. So what I want to do this morning is compare and contrast these two interactions in a sermon that I've titled, Four Blind Men. And if you can't tell, I'm making kind of a pretty big statement with that title. Obviously, we encounter two physically blind men in this narrative, but there's also what we could call a spiritual blindness with James and John that we'll get into as well. And I think here we all have some blind spots when it comes to following Jesus. Perhaps we are blind to the humility of the Christian life. Have we married our faith to our sense of pride and status? Maybe we're blind to the suffering that comes with following Christ. Do we truly live as servants or even slaves, laying down our lives for the sake of others? Are we blind maybe to the kingdom of God, thinking that it reflects the world's ideas of power and control? Maybe we're even blind in our understanding of who King Jesus is, and what he's about. And that affects how we approach him, how we approach God. However this passage confronts our own blind spots, we want to be open to learn from Jesus, right? We want to be open to come away from this passage changed. So we'll start by looking at this interaction with James and John, examining three things. The first is the request that they ask of Jesus. The second is the response from Jesus. And finally, the third thing, the reason behind their request. And then we'll examine those same three things in their interaction with the blind men. So the request, response, and reason. I personally really love alliteration, so I like uh, those three R's there. Uh, So have you ever asked someone important for a favor? I'm sure at some point in life, most of us have. Maybe it was even a favor that you might have been a little embarrassed to ask. So you rehearse how you want to say it. You know, you practice it out. You plan what you're going to say, what kind of context you want to say it in, how you're going to say it. One time, Haley and I uh, asked a potential landlord to lower the rent of, of the house that they'd put on the market that we wanted to live in. I actually wrote out a formal letter, and then we met with him in person at his office. Uh, we ended up compromising and reaching an agreement, so I'd say it was overall mostly a success. But the whole process, it felt a little embarrassing based on the power dynamics at play. The landlord clearly held the power in that situation, and we had to convince him to do this favor for us. Also, it's a pretty uncommon ask to ask a landlord to lower rent. Uh, So maybe you've never been in that particular situation, but maybe you've asked for a promotion before or a raise, or maybe even for something to change in the dynamics of a relationship. And for the Christians in the room, we all ask God for favors. We, We sometimes call that prayer. And what we ask of God, even how we approach God in prayer, says a lot about our own hearts, And it also says a lot about how we view God in light of that. 
So here in our passage today, we have people that are in the very physical presence of God in Jesus Christ. They're able to directly ask him anything. So let's look at James and John, how they approach Jesus and what they request of him. Now, James and John are recorded in the Gospels as some of the first disciples to follow Jesus, leaving behind their profession as fishermen, leaving behind their boat and their father. Uh, So they have seniority in that sense among the disciples, even though John is thought to be one of the youngest disciples. John actually refers to himself in his own gospel narrative, the book of John, as the beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. So there's certainly a very strong relationship between Jesus and John. Traditionally, James and John are thought to be the cousins of Jesus on his mom's side, making their mother Mary's sister, so that's kind of interesting. There could even be an element of familial love in their relationship with Jesus. All that to say, if any of the disciples had the type of relationship or status to ask an important favor of Jesus, it would be James and John. But I think one of the most interesting things about these brothers comes from the nickname that Jesus gives them. I bet some of us have had nicknames in our day. I started going to a small school my freshman year of high school. Back then I went by Tim, which is my first name. And apparently there was a guy that used to go to that school who was also named Tim, and they called him T-uh. That's spelled T-uh. And you can't just say it T-uh, you have to say it T-uh. And I don't know why that was. Like, I don't know the origin of that nickname at all. I just inherited it. It said nothing about who I was as a person. It was just kind of given to me. Uh, But a good nickname does say something about who you are, right? It, It says something about your personality. And the nickname that Jesus gave James and John as recorded in Mark 3 is the Sons of Thunder. Now, Mark never explains why Jesus calls them that, but I think we can make a few assumptions based on what we learn about James and John in the Gospels. Uh, James and John are courageous, they're bold, they're loyal, and even sometimes a little brash and aggressive. Uh, There's two really good examples of this that happen back-to-back in Luke 9. Uh, So start in Luke 9, verse 49, John said to Jesus, Master, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he isn't in our group. But Jesus said, don't stop him. Anyone who's not against you is for you. Continuing on, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. So this nickname could even expose a little sassiness on Jesus' part, calling them the sons of thunder because they're always trying to call down fire from heaven. Uh, It seems that James and John weren't strangers in making bold calls and boldly asking for things from Jesus. And Jesus wasn't a stranger in rebuking James and John for their aggressive boldness. However, with this request here in Matthew 20 to sit at the right and left hands of Jesus, even the sons of thunder seem to be a little shy. They seem to be a little embarrassed to ask this favor. So they bring their mom. Uh, 
In fact, in Mark's account this, uh, of this situation, James and John ask the favor directly, which implies that this desire is not just a desire from their mother, but probably originates with them, and they're simply using their mother here as extra leverage, which, you know, is not a bad idea. There's no better advocate for a son's cause than a revved-up mother. They tell it like it is, right? So looking in our passage today, Matthew 20, verses 20 to 21, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in the places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. So let's unpack that request here in in the light of the book of Matthew. Uh, If you look back in your Bibles to the beginning of this chapter, the beginning of chapter 20, Jesus has just told a parable about the kingdom of heaven, or we could think the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus has been talking about this kingdom, teaching about it, telling these stories and parables about it throughout his ministry. In fact, it's his number one teaching topic. Yet there's still some confusion among the religious leaders and even the disciples about what exactly this kingdom is. When will it come? Where will it come? You know, this confusion would connect back to their traditional understanding of the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of Israel. The disciples were expecting Jesus to restore political power to the Jews and physically free them from the Roman occupation. Rome had taken over Israel, to set up an earthly kingdom through conquest. Growing up in the church, I often thought of the kingdom of God as exclusively a heavenly kingdom with clouds and angels and harps and all that, strictly a spiritual kind of affair. But what's interesting is that the people in Jesus' day would actually naturally see it the opposite, thinking of it as strictly an earthly kingdom, restoring power and authority to the earthly kingdom of Israel. So as they approach Jerusalem, the holy city, there's this energy, you know. When will it be? When will this kingdom come? Will this be the tipping point when Jesus begins to throw down with the Roman Empire? So as Jesus' followers begin to anticipate his exertion of power, James and John, they went in. They went in on that power. To be fair, James and John do have a role to play and an authority that will be given to them by Jesus Jesus actually talks about the 12 thrones for the 12 disciples a chapter earlier in Matthew 19. He says, I assure you, talking to his disciples, that when the world is made new and the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have been my followers will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Yet, James and John see this authority as an opportunity an opportunity to get closer to that glorious throne of Jesus, to share in what we call the glorification of Jesus. Their mother describes the left and right positions as positions of honor. At this time in history, seating arrangement greatly mattered. Whether it's a line of thrones or whether you're sitting at a table, you want to be closest to those in power because it shows your high status. Now, it's not an intrinsically bad thing to share in the glorification of Jesus. In fact, through the resurrection, we can all experience the glory of resurrection life. And I think James and John have such a relationship with Jesus that they genuinely desire closeness to him. Yet when we desire personal glorification without understanding who Jesus is, 
recognizing that our king is a suffering servant, we encounter a blind spot in our understanding of Jesus. He is enthroned in glory not because he seizes a throne in power, but because he lays his life down for the ransom of all. Maybe we this morning see Jesus as a means to an end. Maybe we hold on to our own desires, this desire for glory, without taking up our own cross and dying to self. Do we think, how can Jesus benefit me without allowing Jesus to turn our plans upside down? And we see that just as Jesus rebukes James and John, he's also rebuking us. Because while James and John have the glory of worldly power on their minds, what does Jesus have on his mind? Let's look at the response of Jesus in our passage in verse 22. But Jesus answered by saying to them, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. This favor from the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, exposes their naivety at best. As they seek glory through association with Jesus, they're blind to the suffering that's about to take place. Another thing Jesus has been talking about as they approach Jerusalem, in addition to the kingdom of God, is his eventual suffering and death. We see this just before these verses in verses 17 to 19 in chapter 20. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. They will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. So this is actually Jesus' third prediction of his death in the book of Matthew. And this time they hear the exact method of death for the first time, crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. Jesus describes this as the bitter cup of suffering. Here Jesus is actually calling on an Old Testament image of judgment and wrath seen throughout the Old Testament in places like uh, Psalm 75, 8. And that says, For the Lord holds a cup in his hand that is full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours out the wine in judgment and all the wicked must drink it, draining it to the dregs. So in this verbal imagery, Jesus is foreshadowing his taking the punishment of the wicked, taking our sin upon himself on the cross. He refers to this again as he prepares for his death in the garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. While Jesus does take the full cup of suffering, he warns James and John that they will also drink from this cup, not in atoning for the sins of the wicked, but in suffering a punishment reserved for the wicked, for criminals. You know, James is the first disciple to be martyred. He's killed for his faith by the sword, as recorded in Acts 12. John lives out his life, but he faced much persecution in that time, and he spent his latter days exiled on the Isle of Patmos, living as a literal slave to the Roman Empire. And at this point, James and John, they're not thinking about that type of suffering, They may think that momentary suffering is a part of the process in getting Jesus to the throne and receiving their glory. 
Yet the suffering associated with Jesus is not suffering on a battlefield with wins and losses, but it's a willful sacrifice with redemptive significance. It's laying down one life freely for those that are undeserving. It takes the heart of a servant or a slave, which is why Jesus goes on, starting in verse 25. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials, they flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. We sometimes think about the teachings of Jesus as being countercultural, and of course we kind of think of that in terms of our own culture, uh, as Pastor Jeff would say, modern-day Babylon. Uh, but let's think for a moment about the culture that Jesus and his disciples inhabited, being occupied by the Roman Empire. You know, power and authority characterized the Roman Empire. When Jesus talks about the rulers in this world that lord it over people, the, the first thing they would immediately think of is Caesar. To be more specific, Caesar Augustus, who ruled during the time of Jesus, the grandnephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar, which the title Augustus literally means the exalted one, and he encouraged people to worship him as a god. We could conjure up many examples of the power of Rome and the authority of Caesar, uh, we could think of his military accomplishments, accomplishments on the battlefield. He triumphed in the Roman Civil War, conquering his enemies by military force. Augustus was this conquering king. And in a way, the Jewish people wanted Jesus to be their Caesar, to fight using the tools and the powers of the empire. Yet Jesus re represents a much, much different way the life-giving way that saves people through suffering and sacrifice. Another kind of poignant example of Caesar flaunting his authority is crucifying his enemies, not only making them suffer in the process of death, but humiliating them, making a display and mockery of their lives to elevate respect for his power and his authority. Caesar held your life in the palm of his hand through crucifixion. Yet, who is the one that really holds our lives in the palm of his hand? It's King Jesus. He has all power and authority in the universe, yet he submits himself to crucifixion. Jesus was not an example of worldly power. Rather, he was a victim of it by the plan of the Father. Even in our culture today, we are often drawn to the power of Caesar more than the suffering servant. We seek leaders that would give us power and authority for our own flourishing at the expense of others. And in our own leadership, we are even tempted to turn on each other to elevate ourselves. We know this as sin, the way contrary to the ways of God, the way of Jesus. Sin not only elevates ourselves over each other, but it elevates us over God himself. And Jesus, he sees this sin that's creeping in among his disciples and maybe he even sees it creeping in among us. When Jesus says, among you, it will be different to his disciples in verse 26, we should think of that as a universal command to the entire church. Jesus' disciples, they're this foundation of the church that's to come, Christ's church that we are a part of now. So may it be different among us 
that whatever authority has been gifted to us among each other, among our neighbors, among our city, among our country, that we'd use it not to elevate ourselves above others, but to serve others. It's not that Jesus didn't have the authority of a king. He's the infinite God who holds infinite power beyond any ruler, any Caesar in this world. Yet what does he use his power and authority for? To be a servant, to be a slave, not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. We all want influence in this world, to have the power to leave a mark and make some kind of difference while we're here on earth. The power of Caesar is influence from the top down. The power of Jesus is influence from the bottom up. Think of your own life. Think of the people that have greatly impacted you, people that have inspired you, that have had a positive influence over your life. Were they people that made you feel less than? Were they people that flaunted their authority over you? Were they people that served you? Or were they people that were there for you when you needed it the most? Were, there people, were they people that loved you when you felt unlovable? Were they people that met you on your level and made you feel valued? Were they people that made personal sacrifices so that your life would be better and richer and fuller? Those are the people that had true influence, that had real power in your life, that actually changed you. And may I propose that whether or not they knew it, those people were tapping into the sacrificial servant love of Jesus. May we long for that type of influence. That's what life can look like when we lead as servants and as slaves. But what are the results if we flaunt our authority over one another? We get a taste of that here among the disciples in verse 24. It's indignance. We can think of that as anger, scorn, jealousy, division that creeps in among them. Vying for position only leads to disunity and therefore leads to disunity among us if we vie for position in the church. That's why the Apostle Paul continues these teachings of Jesus in places like Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take on the interests of others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And if you continue on in that passage, you see what comes after that but Jesus' exaltation after his suffering. We once again hear the word slave here. In fact, Jesus starts using the word uh, servant in verse 26, and he progresses to use the word slave. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. So we see this kind of downward progression down the social ladder. Not only are we to be servants of one another, but slaves, some of the lowest class people in their society that cannot rely upon their own ability and their own status for power. So let's contrast that with the reason why James and John are asking these favors of Jesus. The reason, they say, is we are able. 
And we've talked about how they're blind to the suffering of Jesus and, and the servant way of the kingdom. Yet the most important thing they may be blind to is the mercy of God. James and John, the sons of thunder, they're strong individuals. And the statement, we are able, shows their confidence. And while this is in direct response to Jesus' question, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering? Uh, we can also see this as an overarching reason why James and John feel entitled to positions of power at the right and left hand of Jesus. They come before Jesus with a posture of confidence in their own ability. They are able in a way. They have ability. They were Jesus' earliest disciples. They've sacrificed so much already. They've shared in Jesus' sufferings up to this point. They've casted out demons. They've performed miracles. They've preached. They've taught. They've probably lived morally uh, well, above reproach. Yet we know that God's favor towards us is not based on our merit, but by his mercy, by his grace. I'm reminded of the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5. And I learned this Beatitude as blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But the NLT that we use actually translates it as God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So do we realize our need for God this morning, that nothing we bring is worthy of favor, that our best deeds are filthy rags, that we are poor, needy, and blind, but when we recognize our need for a Savior, that's when we understand the true kingdom of God, which is not comprised of those who cling to their own power and ability before God, but those who lay it down as Christ did. It's not a worldly kingdom or just a, a spiritual heavenly kingdom, but a kingdom that is here and now that exists wherever we surrender our pride and live with King Jesus as our Lord, joining in his sufferings as the suffering servant. Are we those who are poor? Are we those that realize our need for him? So we've examined the request from James and John. We've explored Jesus's response and the reason that James and John give that we are able so now let's move on to the next narrative here with the two blind men and see how it interacts with what came before. Uh, for those of you that are checking your watches, don't worry, we'll spend a little less time in this narrative, but hopefully the things we've talked about will kind of click as we compare and contrast here because I believe a lot of the ideas that are brought up in verses 20 to 28 are illustrated here as two blind men have a request from Jesus. Uh, so the blind men's request, as Jesus finished teaching about how whoever wants to lead must be a servant or a slave, the lower positions in their society, uh, the main players in this narrative are those that are actually physically lowly, those that are literally poor, those that are in desperate need of Jesus, and those that are familiar with daily suffering. Out of all the miracles that Jesus performs, he performed a lot, healing of the blind is documented the most in the Bible. Why is that? First, because we believe that it's true. Jesus had a preoccupation with healing the physically blind. Uh, Jesus quotes from Isaiah in Luke 4 when he's beginning his ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released and that the blind will see. So this was a main mission of Jesus. 
The second reason why I believe Jesus healing the blind is documented so much in the Bible is the strong parallel that it has to what happens to all of us when we truly encounter Jesus. I think an incredible thing about Jesus' miracles is that we believe that they are real, that they're literal, yet there's another layer of significance to them as well, relating to the fact that Jesus came to reveal the truth, that Jesus is truth. Maybe you can think back to the moment when you first encountered Jesus, or maybe you, you can recall a story of someone else who first encountered Jesus, uh, that when you first came alive in Christ, you saw the world in a completely different way. You noticed things that maybe you didn't notice before. The things that you thought were good, you realized were passed to death, and the things of God that you were against or indifferent to came to life in new and beautiful ways. Maybe you started reading the Bible and before they were just words on a page, but then all of a sudden they're filled with the breath of the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, and it's beautiful and amazing and good news. That's why the line in the classic hymn, Amazing Grace, it resonates with us so much. You know, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And furthermore, the healings of Jesus are just this beautiful picture of God's plan for our redemption that Jesus is restoring all things to the beauty of how they were created to be, that he's restoring us into who we were created to be in right relationship with him. With that perspective in mind, let's look at this passage and the request that is asked of Jesus. Verses 29 to 33. As Jesus and the disciples left the town of Jericho, a large crowd followed behind. Two blind men were sitting beside the road. When they heard that Jesus was coming that way, they began shouting, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Be quiet, the crowd yelled at them, but they only shouted louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. When Jesus heard them, he stopped and called, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said, we want to see. We want to see. Here we see an illustration of Jesus doing what it means to be a servant, what he just taught his disciples. He is serving those of a culturally very low status, an incredibly disadvantaged position. They have no disability insurance, no way to provide for themselves apart from the mercy of others. So they're sitting here on the road. They have nothing. And Jesus hears their cry through the crowd and meets them on their level. We also see an illustration in these two blind men of what it means to not have authority, to not have ability, but to be poor in spirit and to recognize their need for God. So let's compare that to James and John. Uh, Here there's like a simplicity to their request. There's an earnestness to their request. They, They have no desire for status. They have no ulterior motive in wanting authority, glory, or honor. They just want to be restored. They have a need and they know that only Jesus can meet this need. Maybe we overcomplicate how we approach Jesus. Maybe we come to Jesus, but we still hold on to our own motives. We count the cost, but even in that we consider how can we use Jesus for our own purposes, our own advantage. Maybe even when we pray, we pray that we get what we want Not that God would transform us to desire the things that he wants. Do we recognize our overwhelming need? I don't need anything else. I just need to be healed. I just want to see. I just need mercy. 
I have nothing to bring, nothing to give, but I know that Jesus is Lord, the Son of David. He can restore me. James and John, they they have an advocate in their mother, right? Someone that pleads their case before Jesus. But who do the two blind men have? They have no one. In fact, the opposite. The crowd yells at them to be quiet. They shouted louder, though, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. So as Jesus nears Jerusalem, it's very bold to shout, Lord, Son of David, because if Jesus is Lord, who isn't Lord? Caesar. So saying that is a path to crucifixion. And how does Jesus respond? Well, he felt sorry for them. He touched their eyes. He restored their sight. Jesus responds out of empathy, out of his love, because he understands our suffering. He understands our weakness. So he touches their eyes and he gives them sight. This same narrative exists in the Gospel of Mark, as we mentioned, and Mark only mentions one of these men, and he's named in that narrative, Bartimaeus. And in that account, Jesus says, Go, for your faith has healed you. And it wasn't because he was able, it wasn't because he's had something valuable to contribute, no authority, no power. It wasn't even about who he was per se, but he had faith in Jesus. He trusted Jesus and he followed him after that into Jerusalem towards the cross. Do we have that kind of faith this morning that in our need, in our suffering, Christ is calling us to place our trust in him so that we may be restored, that we may gain Christ, as the Apostle Paul says? As we talk quite a bit about suffering, I want to use this opportunity to assure us that while in the Christian life we do expect suffering when following the suffering servant, we expect persecution, we expect the growing pains of putting our our sinful selves to death and walking in holiness, but we also expect restoration, the unsurpassable worth of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord, that when our sight is restored, how could we ever go back to living blindly? That no matter what may come, we have the Lord's love, his joy, his peace, his patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have everlasting life in the presence of God. No one who truly follows Jesus regrets it in the end. Lastly, I want to look at the reason that these blind men give for Jesus to heal them. And that's have mercy on us. Not we are able, like James and John, but have mercy on us. This phrase, Lord, have mercy, is a phrase that's found throughout the Bible. Uh, It's included in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, if you're familiar with that. The Pharisee, the religious leader, he lorded his authority over others, right? He thanks God that he's not like those sinners underneath him. Yet the tax collector, the unlikely example, says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The new covenant of Christ is not one that's rooted in the abilities of humanity to follow the law, but it's the mercy of God that's revealed to us in Christ. The formal definition of mercy is compassion and forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or to harm. 
And as Matthew writes his gospel for primarily a Jewish audience, he wants them to know that Jesus is not about the works of law done out of your own effort. He's not about the status that you receive as God's chosen people through your ancestry and your background, but he's about using his power to show us compassion and forgiveness, to show us mercy when we were blind. When we experience the love and mercy of Christ, we're filled by the Holy Spirit to show love and mercy to others. There's a beautiful passage in Luke 7 when Jesus is at the house of a Pharisee and a woman enters the house and pours perfume on Jesus' feet. She's crying and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus says this to the judgmental Pharisee. He says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven So she has shown me much love. And this is the important part. A person who is forgiven little shows only little love. If you're struggling to walk in the way of love, have you believed that you've only been moderately forgiven? Do you still cling to your status and ability? Perhaps you don't know the full extent of Christ's mercy towards you, that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. So we fall upon his mercy. And as we're in the season of Lent, that's what we're preparing our hearts for, that we wouldn't approach the suffering and death of Jesus lightly, that we've been moderately forgiven, but that we'd recognize the cost of our brokenness, the cost of sin, that Jesus bore our sins to the grave, that we may experience new life and the glory of the resurrection by his mercy. Not because we are able but because he is able, so all glory be to him. May our reason for coming to Jesus be based on his mercy, and we know that he will respond to us with restoration and healing because he is merciful. So may we come before him bringing our requests and our needs in all earnestness and simplicity, laying down our motives and trusting in him. So let's do that now as we pray in closing. Lord, we join with this blind man and we say, have mercy on us. We come before you, the one that created us. You hold our lives in your hands. We acknowledge that you have all power, all authority, and we come wanting to lay our desires and plans down before you. We know that you are merciful. So Lord, in your mercy, we ask that you would heal us. For those of us that have been walking with you for a while, Uh, we pray that you'd restore our joy, our hope, our confidence in you, that we'd know the goodness of following you once again, that you'd prepare us for suffering, uh, but even in the midst of suffering, give us a peace, your peace that surpasses understanding so that we won't be afraid of whatever is to come, but that we would follow you excitedly and freely, knowing that you've walked the path of suffering before us. For those of us that have not experienced your healing, your restoration, we've been been walking from life feeling very blind. Would we call out to you and whatever voices in our lives and in our hearts tell us to be quiet, would we call out all the more, knowing that you are the only one that can restore us to how we were created to be? And Lord, we need you. So come, Lord Jesus. Lord, would we be a servant-hearted people? in a divided world where everyone is fighting for status and for power, would we be different? Would we follow Jesus' radical example of sacrificial love? 
Keep us far from division as a church. May we be eager to lay our lives down for one another. And may that be an example of your love to those around us. We can't do this on our own ability, so we ask for your spirit to do a new work in us, that our old self-centered selves would fade and that we would be more and more like Jesus. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen.